Welcome back to Black Muse. I'm Clarence Waldron. Tonight, we have a very special guest who needs no introduction. You say the name Tavis Smiley, everyone knows who you're talking about. I remember years ago, Jed did a cover story on Tavis, and uh, we said that when he talks, America listens. And that is so true. So here he is, here he is now, his own radio station in L.A., still talking, and he's going to talk all about that. So let's get started. It's good to see you, first yeah, of all. You yes, doing all right? I'm doing well. You're looking I'm well, looking well. well. Yes, indeed. Glad to be back in the, uh, in the windy city. Not yeah. so windy today, kind of hot. It is a little yeah. windy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so this is your second anniversary of your radio station, KBLA. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So... What is that like? Tell me about the radio station. Tell me all that good stuff. Yeah, so um, talk radio is a is a is an economic behemoth in this country. It's a it's a multi billion dollar industry, um, and you might be surprised to know, Clarence, that there are only four five black owned talk radio stations in the country. I mean, it's a huge industry, um, but there are only four or five black owned stations. Uh, there's a station in New Orleans. One in Washington, D.C., Baltimore, one in Philadelphia. Of course, here in Chicago, the famed WVON. Sure. I love VON, Voice of the Negro. Yes, yes indeed. Uh, and uh, we have uh, now KBLA Talk 1580 in Los Angeles. So a couple of years ago, I bought um, a station that was a heritage station, is a heritage station in L.A. Uh, KBLA uh, Talk 1580 uh, was the original K-Day. Uh, 1580. For those who grew up in L.A., or those who know anything about the history of hip-hop, we're celebrating 50 years, as you know, of hip-hop now. Absolutely. The first station in the country to play hip-hop music 24 hours a day, seven days a week, was 1580 in L.A. Mm. So in L.A., it's an iconic station in the hip-hop game. It's iconic. Artists owe their careers to 1580 AM in L.A. Um, so it was a hip-hop station, always white on, but it was the first station to play hip-hop music 50 years ago. As a matter of fact, Netflix, I think, is doing a documentary about it. So it's a huge iconic station in L.A. Again, if you grew up in L.A., everybody knows 1580 AM. Uh, it was called K-Day at the time. Uh, that was years ago. Um, and of course, now hip-hop is hegemonic. Everybody plays hip-hop on all the stations, right? So this station basically went by the wayside some years ago. Uh, so long story short, um, I came along and bought it from its current owner, uh, 1580 AM, and then turned it into a talk station. And I did that because, again, um, there are only, you know, before we enter the game, four black-owned talk stations in the country. Uh, and you know what my work and witness has been all about, trying to empower people, enlighten people, inspire people, encourage people. And so it was, a, for me, an extension, a continuation of the work that I've tried to do, the work and witness I've tried to engage. And so we brought it online on Juneteenth. Uh, I figured if it's a black station, why not launch on Juneteenth, right? Wow. So we launched on Juneteenth of 2021, which is really cool because our birthday every year is on Juneteenth. Oh, yeah. So uh, I'll be thinking, as my <laughs> friend George Wallace said, I'll be thinking, I'll be thinking, man. So our, our, our anniversary is every year on Juneteenth. So we literally just celebrate our second anniversary. We are now into year three, uh, and things are going remarkably well. I can tell you that a startup is a startup is a startup, so it's a lot of work. Uh, but ultimately, our plans are to build a black talk radio network. So we're in the midst of a major capital raise right now to buy other stations across the country and to build on what, we are, what we've established in L.A., uh, to build a black-owned talk radio network across the country and syndicate the programming. Uh, and so black people have always loved entertainment. Um, I love entertainment. You love entertainment. But we live in a serious world with serious issues. Uh, people are struggling with serious challenges. 
And we need serious conversation, serious dialogue. And we're bringing that every day uh, in a way that amplifies black voices, where black folk have their say. Talk radio, finally, is a very conservative citadel. It's a very conservative medium. You think talk radio, you think Rush Limbaugh, you think Sean Hannity, you think um, all these persons who own this medium but are white and male and conservative. And here we come boldly and brazenly saying to black folk now that we want you to have your own platform, your own network, where your voices can be amplified, where we can talk about the issues that matter to us, our hopes, our dreams, our aspirations, our frustrations, our fears, what it means to be navigating life every day in the skin that we are in. So the station's doing really, really well in L.A. I said we're two years in and we're just trying to build this network, but it's, um, it's coming along. Good, yeah. good. Now, you have a three-hour talk show. I do. And so talk about that and all the other hosts that you have. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to break some news with you today. Oh, oh. You ready for yeah, this? Yeah, Okay. Go ahead. See how much I love you? Look at you. Can I, I bring you breaking news? Um, so my show is on every day, 9 a.m. to 12 noon in Los Angeles. And frankly, after all the years I've been in the game and, you know, you and I have known each other for years, um, uh, I'm at the point in my career now, frankly, where I, I really don't want to be on the air every day. I want to run this business and build this company and buy these stations and, and, and again, give our people and the nation a black-owned and operated talk radio network that's, that's huge and significant and has impact. That's what I want to spend my time doing. Um, but when you're raising money from investors, they want to know, are you going to be on the air? <laughs> and mm. they won't contribute unless they know you're going to be on the air. Talk to mm. Denzel or any of my other friends in Hollywood who want to direct films. The producers want to know, are you going to be in it? And if you're in it, they'll put their money up. Exactly. So that's exactly. how it works, as you well know. So I'm on the air three hours a day because my investors won't let me not be on the air three hours a day. So I do 9 a.m. to 12 noon in L.A. By the way, you listen listen on our app anywhere in the world. It's KBLA 1580. So download our app. You can listen to us anywhere, literally in the world, in real time. So I've been on for three hours in the last couple of years. Even though I didn't really want to do it, uh, I've been just just humbled by the success that the program is having. So literally in the last two months, um, yeah, the last eight weeks, there have been two major honors that have come my way. Um, the highest award um, that you can receive in the talk radio industry is called the Freedom of Speech Award, the Gene Burns um, uh, Freedom of Speech Award. Uh, and there's a huge convention every year called Talkers, where all the talk show hosts show up by the thousands at this convention. Uh, it was in New York this year, just a few weeks ago. Uh, so I was honored, you know, literally just two years into this to receive the Freedom of Speech Award at Talkers 2023, the highest award wow. in our industry. So that was very humbling for me just a few weeks ago. And then just a few days ago, literally just a few days ago, um, before I arrived here in Chicago to see you, um, the annual list of what they call the Heavy 100. It is the top 100 most important uh, radio talk show host in the country. The 100 most important uh, radio talk shows in the country. Uh, they put this list out every year. Again, it's called the Heavy 100. And uh, two years in, I uh, premiered um, two weeks ago at number 45 on the list of the most important radio talk show hosts in the country. So those two honors um, uh, mean a lot to me. Uh, just two years in, the station's doing well, but the, the personal honor uh, of my program, my show every day, uh, means a lot to me. Uh, and so we are literally just about to announce uh, that on July 31st, uh, the Tabby Smiley Show is going into national syndication. Whoa! And you heard it first. Um, so we're going into national syndication on the 31st. Uh, we're launching uh, our first station will be in New Orleans, WBOK, 1230 AM in New Orleans. 
Uh, and then shortly after Labor Day, we'll be rolling out other cities. I uh, can't tell you all the details yet, but there are a bunch of other cities that are going to be coming online after we start in New Orleans. So here I am all these years later. When I first met you, I was on the Tom Joyner Morning Show right. uh, as right. uh, his sidekick. Right. He was syndicated. Tom was hugely syndicated. Uh, and so I, could, I should only be so lucky as to be as big as Tom Joyner uh, right. was in syndication. But my career has sort of come full circle. So I'm, I'm back on radio. Uh, now I'm in ownership. And here we are literally just a, you know, a few days away on July 31st uh, from my own show going into national syndication. So a lot of work. A lot of excitement, but um, it's, uh, it's, it's a heavy wow. lift. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. All right. So in the meantime, what's the average day like for you now yeah. with the radio station? So um, uh, I feel like I haven't slept in, in three years. Can you see those bags on their minds? Can, can you see? Can you see? Uh, oh, y'all. Yeah. I feel like I haven't slept in a few years. Uh, because, again, a startup, whether, I don't care if it's a mom-and-pop grocery store. I don't care if it's a, you know, uh, it can be anything, right? right. Uh, when you start a business, um, it's it's an uphill battle, and most businesses in this country, small businesses, don't survive. You know, two, three, four, five years, uh, and so we're just literally starting year three. So the, you know, the truth of the matter is, we ain't out the woods yet, um, and so uh, knock on wood, there's some wood around here somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're not, yeah, <laughs> we're not completely out of the woods yet. Um, but again, things are, things are going well. So I feel like I haven't slept in a few years, but basically I'm, I'm up super early in the morning. Um, you know, if, if I get to sleep past six o'clock, it's a good day, right? Uh, I'm up early in the morning, um, cause I want to get into my, 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 my office early to make sure that whatever breaking news has happened overnight uh, that I may have missed or early that morning, I want to be on top of it before I go on top of it before I go live on the air at nine o'clock LA time. Um, so I'm up early, uh, no later than six. Um, in my office um, uh, by 7, 7.30, uh, prepping to go on the air live at 9. Um, I do a three-hour show. I change topics Excuse me, every hour, sometimes every half hour, depending on what's happening in the news. Hmm. So I literally do three different topics, three different guests or sets of guests every day. So it's, it's fast-paced. At the 9 o'clock hour, I'm talking to Clarence Waldron. 10 o'clock hour, I'm talking to Barack Obama. 11 o'clock hour, I'm talking to Halle Berry. I mean, every day, I'm changing topics, changing guests every hour. So it's fast-paced, but it requires a lot, of, a lot of work and a lot of reading. So I do the show 9 to 12. I get off the air at noon, try to get a quick bite to eat, <clears throat> somewhere between 12 and 1. And literally, from 1 o'clock until 8 o'clock, the rest of the day, I'm, I'm running our company. I'm in meetings. I'm in... Uh, staff meetings, sales meetings, um, talent meetings, um, uh, personnel meetings, fundraising, uh, sometimes going on sales calls with my staff when you're a young station. Um, one of the ways that you close deals is for Tavis to show up to the meeting. So a lot of times I'm taking sales calls with my sales staff to make sure we get that money, mm. that advertising revenue. So it's a lot of work. Um, I don't knock off any day before 8, 9, sometimes 10 o'clock. Uh, and when I do finally uh, knock off um, from running, from the business of running the company, uh, I, I, I grab dinner um, and I'm sitting for the next two or three hours reading and prepping uh, for tomorrow's show. Mm -hmm. So I don't get to bed most nights till midnight or 1230. Um, so I'm not getting a lot of sleep uh, and some nights is later than that. Um, the weekends are busy making appearances. Again, you start a new station you got to be out there. So I'm back to making more appearances than I want to make. 
but people need to see you and know that you're that you're there and you got to promote and market your station so when you're the face of the station and you're the owner of the station it's just a lot of work so <clears throat> it's pretty non-stop um but as i say all the time uh, people come on the program and i'll say you know you know hello clients good to have you on the show thank you tabas how are you and my response to everybody is always the same people kind of tease me about it now my response is always people ask me how i'm doing i say it i'm doing well if i complained i'd be an ingrate if i complained I'd be an ingrate, and I mean that sincerely. It's a lot of work, uh, but I, I literally don't have a complaint in the world. And you know, everybody knows that you know these last few years have been tough for me in a lot of ways. Um, my tenure at PBS did not end well uh, for me. When I say didn't end well, um, I was disappointed in uh, uh, the way that PBS handled that situation. And as you know, filed a lawsuit against PBS, went to court. So there's, there's a lot's gone on in the last five years. Um, and you know, this is a business that's very fickle. Uh, and when you choose to step away and try to come back, that can be difficult. Uh, and if you get pushed out and try to come back, that can be difficult. Um, and so when you've established a career um, for 30 years like I have, and the bottom sort of falls out, um, you don't know that you'll ever get back. And, I, you know, I'm in my 50s. I'm still relatively young, right? Uh, and so I, I didn't think that my work or my witness was over, um, but it was, you know, that PBS thing happened at the end of 2017, and I didn't get back on the air until 2021. So there were like you know four or five years in there where I didn't know if I'd ever get back to doing what I think God you know put me on the earth on the planet to do, to try to enlighten people, encourage people, empower people, to try to love people and serve people. There was a period when I didn't know whether I'd get back in the game, and that's a tough, tough thing to deal with when you're when you've been doing one thing for your entire career and you yeah. don't know if you'll ever get the opportunity to do it again. Right. It, was a, it was a challenge. And so I, I say all that to say that to be back in the game and to be receiving these honors and accolades and, you know, um, going into national syndication, um, it ain't number God. And I'm just, I'm just grateful. And so that's why I don't complain. I try not to complain about anything because it could be the case that I can be still sitting at home somewhere waiting on my phone to ring or waiting on an opportunity. And so what I've learned in this process is uh, that sometimes you, you don't wait to be invited to the party. You start your own party. Um, mm -hmm. You don't wait to be invited. You don't wait to be invited, yeah. you know, to, to, to come back in the room. You just bust through the door and break your way into the room. Yeah. And sometimes you just have to, you know, you have, you have to build your own thing, right? You right. have to build your own thing. And so I'm, I'm grateful. And so I, I try not to complain. Right. That's, what, that's, what, that's a long answer to your yeah. question. Right. But my point is they're long days okay. is uh, what I was trying to say. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, do, you, do you miss not being on TV? Have you, gotten... um, you know, it's funny. It's a very good question. Um, and the, I was, <laughs> so but a few weeks ago, I was in uh, New York um, to celebrate my friend Geraldo Rivera's 80th birthday. Yes. So Geraldo, um, I always say to people, if you like me, if you love me, thank Geraldo Rivera. If you hate me, blame Geraldo Rivera. Because Geraldo Rivera was the first person to ever put me on national television. Yes. So Geraldo put me out there first many, many years ago, and I was on his program regularly and certainly nightly on his CNBC program during the O.J. Simpson trial. Mm -hmm. I was on, you know, with Geraldo's. Geraldo's show was really the show of record during the O.J. case. And that was, I can believe it's over 20 years now since the O.J. case. Um, so I was on his show almost every night uh, on, um, on CNBC when he had that late night program. So he put me out there first, and the rest, as they say, is history. Later came BET and Tom Joyner and all the things I've been blessed to do. 
ABC and CNN and PBS and NPR and now, you know, KBLA. But it all started with Geraldo putting me out there on, on, on national television. So he and I were together a few weeks ago. He turned 80. His birthday is on July 4th. Mm -hmm. So I celebrated July 4th with him in New York. A bunch of people celebrated with him mm -hmm. for his 80th birthday. And he asked me this same question. He says, Tavis, man, I miss seeing you on television. Mm -hmm. uh, you got to get back on TV. Do you miss it? And I said to him, it's a very interesting question. Um, I've done literally two national TV interviews in the last five or six years. Only two. Um, when we announced the radio station coming online, I, I agreed to do Bill Maher's show on HBO, his real-time show. I agreed to do Bill's show. I didn't want to do it, but I agreed to do Bill's show because Bill's one of my investors. Hmm. So there are a number of investors in this radio business. Uh, Ice Cube is an investor. Bill Maher is an investor. Some NBA players are investors. So there are a number of people who are investing in building this black-owned talk radio network. Bill Maher is a white guy, obviously. He's a friend of mine, but he's a serious investor in this black-owned talk radio network. Ooh. So Bill insisted, I had no choice, right? <laughs> uh, he insisted I come on real time. And he wanted to brag about, you know, me being back and he owns his own radio station. And I appreciated the gesture. So I did it because Bill asked me. Um, and first of all, I hadn't done television in four or five years at that point. So I'm not gonna lie, I was a little nervous. You know, I hadn't been on television in a while. I'm, after being on TV every day for 30 years, I hadn't been on television for a while. Um, so I was a little nervous. Um, um, the show went well, um, and when I got off the air and went back to my house, um, I was literally in tears that night because when I saw the response all around the country to my having appeared on HBO that night, people hadn't seen me in, you know, four, I said four or five years, the response was uh, so overwhelming, it literally moved me to tears. So I was, I was grateful that people missed me missed hearing my voice, talking about critical issues, missed seeing my face. Um, uh, some folks teased me about how gray I had gotten since the last time they saw me. Uh, I ain't got time to color my hair. I, I'm too busy to, to go to the shop to get it colored. Uh, so it is what it is, right? Uh, but um, I, was, I, was, I was buoyed by that. I was humbled by it. It, 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 it just felt really nice to, to know that people missed you, your voice and your, and your face. Um, and then Chris Cuomo. Um, when he got turned out at CNN and wound up on a new network. I've known Chris for years, and again, I know what it's like to try to bounce back, uh, and so I support my friends who are mm -hmm, trying to bounce mm -hmm, back. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I agreed to go on Chris Cuomo's show uh, when he started on his new network. And got home that night and just didn't feel that thing I used to feel. Used to feel. Hmm. So it's a long way of saying, um, no, I don't miss it. And in some ways, I'm surprised by that because I've done it for so many years. I was surprised by it. In other ways, I am, I am heartened by it. Let me tell you what I mean by that right quick. Because I live in L.A., because I'm in Hollywood, I know far too many people who don't understand that Hollywood is what they do. It's not who they are. You can't ever confuse those. You can't ever confuse or conflate those two things. We are not what we do. We are who we are. Um, and if you ever get separated from that thing that you do, or ever confused that you are the thing that you do, what happens when you can't do that thing anymore, right? Um, so I don't, I don't ever want to tie my humanity, uh, my worth, my value to what I do. Um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to do it every day. Um, but I don't, I don't ever want to even consider 
that I would think that my life is over or that my life is less than or I'm not worthy because I'm not on TV every day. Uh, and so it's refreshing. It's a beautiful thing to know that I can sort of step away from that and not feel like my identity is tied to that uh, or get depressed. So I know a lot of people, again, a lot of actors who are just bummed and depressed because they're not on TV anymore. And at some point, if you live long enough, you're not going to be on TV anyway. At some point, you age out. Right. And I, you know, I've known people, I, I know people who you know, are just lost because they're not on television anymore. I, I've known others in my career who aged really gracefully. Sidney Poitier, as you know, was a dear friend of mine. We had lunch together every other Tuesday for 27 years. I miss Mr. P, mm -hmm. Harry Belafonte, dear friend of mine. I've lost, you know, all of my friends are like older people. And the mm -hmm. reason is I love old people. Or shall we say, people who are chronologically gifted. Yes. I love yes. chronologically gifted yes. people. Uh, and so if you if you gave me a choice, and I've had this opportunity many times in my career, if you give me a choice to talk to, and I ain't hitting, hitting on young folk. I was once young. The Bible says I was young, and now I'm old. Uh, so I've, I've seen both. I've been rich and I've been poor. Trust me, rich is better. Okay. Um, so I'm not hating on young people, but I love and have given the opportunity to talk to a young person or interview an older person. I'll take the older person any day of the week because I love their wisdom. I love their stories. I love what they have to share. And so it turns out that most of my friends, I've realized as I'm getting older, are older people. And so literally in the last five, six years, I've just lost so many friends. These aren't folks I just know or have met or interviewed. They're friends of mine. I go to dinner with them. I vacation with them. I go to their house. They come to my house. <clears throat> so to have the honor <clears throat> of knowing Mr. P, uh, Portier, the way I did, and Harry Belafonte, the way that I did, as I sit here talking to you right now, Tony Bennett died uh, today, uh, the best ever. Frank Sinatra said so. The chairman of the board said that Tony Bennett was the best ever. Tony Bennett was my dear friend. Um, and uh, when he was last in L.A. for his final performance at the famed Hollywood Bowl, yes. he called me one day and asked me um, if I would bring him on stage. Mr. Bennett, are you serious? He said, I'm serious. His last performances at the Hollywood Bowl over a weekend, he asked me to bring him on stage. And so for two nights at the Hollywood Bowl, his last performances, he'd been there 40 times in his career. <clears throat> Those last two nights, <clears throat> I brought him on stage. <clears throat> and so I was, um, you know, saddened um, to hear that, you know, Tony Bennett had passed away earlier today as we sit for this conversation. Yeah. So my point is that that I'm, I'm losing, I'm, I'm losing, I'm losing friends. But I, I raise those issues because these are all friends of mine who age gracefully. Portier knew when it was time to step away from doing movies. Belafonte knew when it was time to pass the torch. So I've, I've seen both. I've seen people that can't handle that they're not on television, and I've seen folks do it, stepping away. That is very gracefully. I want to be the latter and not the former. So I'm just pleased to know that I don't feel some sort of way because folks aren't seeing my face every day. There may be a time when I get back on television, you know, more regularly. I am, you know, happy to, to share with you that there have been three or four uh, networks that reached out to me about doing television again. Uh, but I've turned them all down. And I've turned them all down because, one, as I say, at the moment I really don't miss it. But secondly, I only have, you know, they have so many hours in the day. I just told you, I ain't getting no sleep as right, it is, right? Right, right? So I'm spending all of my time really trying to build this business. I want to build a black-owned, black-operated, national talk radio network for our people. That's my goal right now. And anything that distracts me from that is not my friend. 
And mm -hmm. so if I start doing more television, I go back to doing TV, going back to doing a TV show every day, I can't invest the time I need to invest to build this. So let me, let me, let me deal with this, build this thing, and maybe television again, but at the moment, I don't miss it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, you're a great friend, Prince. Mm. He believes in owning his music. Yeah, absolutely. Did that sort of inspire you to own your station? No question. All right. No question. Right. Um, uh, you hit the nail on the head. Right. So, um, the reason why I own KBLA Talk 1580 right now, uh, in a word, is Prince. I love the color of your shirt today. Prince would like that. <laughs> Yeah, he's like, um, <laughs> the reason why I own the station is because of Prince. Um, mm. So the short version is this: um, for years, uh, Prince, who was a you know dear friend of mine, traveled the world with that guy. Um, he would always say to me, "Tavis, um, content is king. So what I want you to do in your career is make sure you own your content. Content is king. Make sure you own your content." Mm. I've been very fortunate. I own my I own my books. Uh, I own my building that I'm in. I own the radio station. Uh, I, I own all the rights to my speeches. Uh, I own PBS for 15 years at PBS. You know, it ended the way it ended, but I own all that content. 15 right years, now. that entire right. catalog belongs to me. Uh, mm. I own the catalog of all the shows. Um, again, my, 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 my radio, my TV, my books, you know, my building, I own everything. And I believe in ownership because Prince encouraged me to make sure that, that I owned my content. Prince built Paisley Park. Mm -hmm. So everything that he did, I tried to emulate, you know, by owning everything. And you recall at one point, he did not own his masters. You remember for a while he had that word slave written on his face? Yes, he did. And his beard because he was a slave. And it took him a long time fighting with Warner Brothers to finally get his masters back before he... Uh, transition before he passed away, he finally got him back. And you know, Anita Baker just got hers back. 30 some years of fighting to get her master's back. It's insane. So Prince told me early on, don't be like me. Own your masters. Own your content. Mm. Content is king. So he told me that lesson uh, over and over and over again. I learned that lesson. And then one day um, before he passed away, uh, not too long before he passed away, he called me one day. He says, Tavis. I said, yeah. He said, I think I have to change my formulation. I said, what do you mean? Hmm. He said, I've been telling you for years that content is king. I said, yeah, and I've done exactly what you told me to do. He said, yeah, you have, and I'm proud of you, and that's cool. He said, but here's what I'm realizing. Content is king, said Prince, but distribution is emperor. Ooh. Content oh, is king, okay. but distribution is emperor. He said to me, I believe that the next iteration of your career, the next phase of your career, you know, ought to include, you ought to consider finding a way to own your own distribution system so that you don't just own the content, you own the delivery model. And I took that in, I listened to it, and I received it. I had no idea that the PBS thing was going to turn out the way it did, and then I'd be sitting at home trying to figure out and praying and asking God, what's my next move, what's my next step? And one day at 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, um, Prince, is, uh, uh, Prince is gone at this point. Uh, he's dead. Um, made his transition. But at 3 o'clock in the morning, I like just shot up straight and shot up in my bed in the middle of the morning at 3 o'clock. And it hit me. Distribution. You have to own your own distribution system. That's the way you get back in the game. Stop waiting for somebody to call you and offer you a job. Stop waiting for the phone to ring. 
um, you know how to do this. Hmm. You know, you, 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 you are a content creator. Right. right. So now it's just a matter of marrying your ability to create content with a distribution system. And so I started, started thinking about it, started thinking about that. And then George Floyd gets murdered. And I see all these protesters in the streets, in this country and around the globe. And it just sort of occurred to me, what happens when the protesters come out of the streets, the cameras are turned off, the microphones are silenced, how will our people have their say? What platform will they go to right. to express themselves, to amplify their voices, to, to share their grievances? What, what, what platform do we own? What platform do we have? And bam, just like that, it hit me. Wow. And I went in search of buying a radio station. I said, I'm going to buy me a radio station. I'm going to build a black-owned talk radio network to make sure our people have their own, uh, again, platform to express themselves. And I went to work on it. And again, God works in mysterious ways. I was actually in escrow to buy another station in Los Angeles. And uh, a friend of mine called me and who knew I was, you know, in, the, in buying this station mm -hmm. and said, you know, Tavis, I, I think, I think um, 1580 may be available. I said, what? I said, K-Day, 1580? He said, yeah. I said, I, he said, I think it might be available um, if you make the right offer. It was not on the market. The station was not even on the market, but he knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody <laughs> who said, yeah, you know, you know how the black thing works, right? Uh -huh. uh, so uh, long story short, uh, he was right. Uh, and I literally ended up getting out of escrow with the station I was buying to get 1580 because it was an iconic heritage station. And again, I'm a marketing guy, right? You're a marketing guy. Um, I knew that if I bought 1580 versus the station that I was buying, the minute you say 1580 in LA, everybody knows what you're talking about. Right. I mean, your, your right. branding, your marketing is done for you because yes. everybody knows yeah. this iconic station in LA, yes. 1580. Yeah. Uh, and so I got a escrow. Um, did a deal for 1580, and the rest, as they say, is history. And here I am talking to Clarence Walvin on Black News. All right, and there it is. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go back to uh, in the very beginning of your career. You used to have those teenage workshops. Mm -hmm. I forgot the name of it. Something Youth to leaders. Yeah. Youth yeah, to yeah, leaders. Yeah. 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 And yeah. one guy I know is a minister. The other guy's a mm -hmm. computer whiz mm -hmm. and all that. Have you ever wondered? What they're doing now? So oh yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have to wonder. They stay oh. in touch with me. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah. what you're talking about is, is the Tavis Smiley Foundation. Yes. And we have for years um, trained young people uh, around uh, leadership. Mm -hmm. So that's the one thing our foundation has done. We train young people how to be leaders, uh, and we get them early, like at 13. So we're not right. getting them in their 20s, even their college. We start training young people at the age of 13 yes. how to be a servant leader. Right. Right. And our, our, our motto is very simple, um, and this is my definition of leadership that you've heard countless times, and we, we teach this and, and train this through our foundation. You can't lead people if you don't love people, and you can't save people if you don't serve people. You can't lead if you don't love, you can't save if you don't serve. So that leadership is fundamentally about what is the depth of your love for everyday people. And what is the quality of your service to them? Leadership is not about titles and degrees, and how much money you make, and mm -hmm. what kind of car you drive, what neighborhood you live in, and who your mom and them are, what kind of hookup you had, and where you went to school, and <laughs> what's your pedigree. Right. Not impressed. Right. You want to impress me, 
and you want to call yourself a leader, I told an audience the other day, um, if you call yourself a leader and you look behind, ain't nobody following you, you just out for a walk. <laughs> you know, if, you're, if anybody follow you. Right. So that leadership, again, the Bible says we'll know a tree by the fruit that it bears. If you're a leader, somebody ought to be following you. But people would rather see a sermon than hear a sermon. They'd rather see a sermon than hear a sermon. So you have to be a living epistle. You have to be an example of that which you are trying to teach and tell other people. So be a sermon. Don't just preach a sermon, right? Uh, and so we tell people all the time, these young people, that you can't lead folk if you don't love folk. It all starts with love. And you can't save folk if you don't serve folk. So our attendants are about love and service. And that's what my career has been about, trying to love and serve people. Mm -hmm. So we've trained thousands, thousands, thousands of young people all across this country mm -hmm. in, in uh, youth leadership development. And to your point, uh, they are now, you know, um, uh, uh, having families and making babies and um, they tease me sometimes because the kids I trained have kids and I still don't as yet have kids so um, but I've got you know I've got uh, the minority leader uh, of the house in Pennsylvania started in my program okay okay um, a top uh, a top a diplomat in the State Department uh, trained in our program um, top executive Procter and Gamble trained in our programs. They're, they're all over the place now. Mm, so they started nice, 13. Nice. They've gone to college. They've graduated. They've gone to grad school. They're married. They have families. They're into their careers now, and they're doing what they learned through the Tabas Valley Foundation. Whatever their role in the world is, they're loving and serving people through their work and through their witness. And so, um, I of all the things I've done, nothing makes me prouder. Uh, then getting letters all the time, getting emails, just being on the road or in the airport bumping into kids who came through our program mm -hmm. or running into their parents yes. and their parents say, man, my kid went through your program and now they're, they're doing X, Y, or Z. So I, I get that all the time and nothing I've done in my career means more to me than, than that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, before you go away, this is the Black Muse podcast mm -hmm. and I always like to know pe people's inspirations. Who inspired you, Tavis? I think I know. Yeah, I think you know. I think I know. Yeah, I think you know. For them to know. Yeah, yeah. I think you know. I think everybody knows. Uh, if you have followed my career at all, then you know that I regard uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, as the greatest American this country's ever produced. That's my assessment. Uh, I could debate you on that. I could debate you on FDR, great American. I could debate you on Abraham Lincoln. I was just in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. The other day, I'd never been to Gettysburg, um, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Gettysburg Address. Uh, there was a huge um, gathering, the convention there, and I was asked to keynote this convention in Gettysburg. Um, and it was fascinating for me to just you know walk around. And if, if you've never been there before, they've kept the city as close to what it was during the battle as they can. So mm -hmm. there are literally cannons still on the battlefield. Okay. Uh, and there are statues. And uh, But the, the city is interesting just to walk through. There are buildings you can walk by where there are still holes, gunshot holes, bullet holes in the buildings um, that are there from the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, so it was, it was, you know, it was a, I, I'm a history student, so it was, mm -hmm. it was a fascinating trip for me to, um, to go to Gettysburg. Um, uh, but I raised that uh, because uh, I'm in Gettysburg, I'm thinking about Lincoln, but being, me being who I am, I'm also thinking about King giving his I Have a Dream speech at the Lincoln Memorial, mm -hmm. at the March on Washington. So yes. whatever I'm doing, King is never too far from, from, my, from my thinking. Um, but I can debate you on Lincoln, I can debate you on FDR, but to my mind, uh, MLK, 
is the greatest American we've ever produced. And the simple answer for why is because nobody has fundamentally changed the direction of this country and the world um, whose only weapon was love. I mean, think about that. The only weapon Dr. King ever had um, was love. And with that love, he transformed the world. He said all the time that love is the only force in the world that's powerful enough to turn enemies into friends. Uh, and so I, re I regard him as the greatest American ever. And um, he has always been my, my, my guiding light. He's always been my North Star. And, and, and not that I could ever be Dr. King. That's not the point. I'm not trying to be. None of us could ever be Dr. King. The point is that somebody has to do the hard work of making the world safe for his legacy. And I regard King's legacy as, as simply this, justice for all, service to others, and a love that liberates people. That's his legacy. Justice for all, service to others, and a love that liberates people. Uh, and the farther we get away from his time here on earth, I was just with our friend Cornell West the other day. I'm gonna ask you about him. Yeah, and we were together the other day, and um, the other day was Mandela Day, International Nelson Mandela Day, uh, which happens every year on July the 20th. So we were together recently, and Dr. West uh, said something that only Cornell West could say. He said, Brother Tavis, I, I think we are witnessing the Santa Clausification of Nelson Mandela. And I dropped my head. I said, okay, Doc, unpack it for me. Unpack it for me. <laughs> the Santa Clausification <laughs> Of Nelson Mandela. Ooh, yo. Yeah. And so what he's what he what he's saying to me is that the farther we get away from Mandela's time here on earth, the more people want to tame him and defang him and deodorize him. So they don't want to wrestle with the radical Nelson Mandela of the ANC. They only want that Mandela who became president and walked out of prison and had on the Versace, the Versace shirt and and was talking about love and bringing South Africa together. They love that Mandela. They don't want to deal with the real Mandela, right. the radical Mandela. Right. And the same right. is true of Dr. King. Right. We are experiencing the Santa Clausification of Martin King. People don't want to deal with the radical Martin King. People act like Dr. King only gave one speech in his life, and the speech only had one line in it, <laughs> that I want my children to live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That's all people know from that I have a dream speech. We play that same clip, that same one line over and over and a little bit of I have a dream, right. the phrase, right. that's all we get. Well, King is giving speeches every day of his life. He's traveling in this country and all around the world. And I always like to, I always like to shock folk with this. You know, I wrote a book about King um, called Death of a King. It's a book that looks at his last year, the only book that looks at literally the last year of his life, which is the most pivotal part for me of understanding who King really was. So the book starts on April 4, 1967, when he gives the Beyond Vietnam speech uh, at the Riverside Church in Manhattan. That speech put a target on his back because King comes out of that Beyond Vietnam speech and says the following. He says, America, you are the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today because of our engagement in the Vietnam War. Now think about this now. This is a Negro telling the good white folk, you, America, are the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. Even my folks say, Negro, you done lost your mind. You don't talk to us that way. You, who, who do you think you are? Yeah. 
I, and they put a target on him that day. The next day, every newspaper in this country turned against Dr. King. And over the course of that, that last year, so he gives his speech, watch this, April 4, 1967. They kill him April 4, 1968. Yeah. It's literally a year from the moment he gives that speech to the day they kill him, almost to the very same hour. Right. on that balcony at the Lorraine Motel right. in Memphis. So the book focuses just on this last year of his life. And if you think you know Martin King, you don't really know him until you see him in the darkest days of his life. Because in that last year, everybody and everything turns against Dr. King. He's disinvited to speak at colleges. Black preachers won't let him preach in their churches. Roy Wilkins turns against him. Thurgood Marshall turns against him. Whitney Young turns against him. All these bourgeois Negroes are mad at Martin because he's doing a tete-a-tete -tete with Lyndon Johnson about the war in Vietnam. And they're like, Martin, Lyndon Johnson is our friend. The Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, the stuff we march with you to get. Right. And Martin is like, yeah, he was right on that, but he's wrong on this. Okay. And my, my conscience leaves me no other choice but to call him out for this war in Vietnam, which is wrong. We now know years later that it was the worst mistake America ever made. Robert McNamara, the defense secretary, eventually came out and apologized and said, we made a huge mistake. But Martin in that last year is persona non grata. People don't want to be in photos with him. They don't want him around. So we don't remember the last year of his life, how maltreated he was. It wasn't until 20 years later until Stevie Wonder, working with Credit Scott King, got the holiday, wrote the song. That was 20 years later. But in the last year of his life, when he died on that balcony, was murdered on that balcony, yeah. Martin Luther King Jr., as I said, was persona non grata. And so that last year is when you see who he really was. And the truth is that in the darkest moments of his life, he never strayed from his real commitment. You see who he was um, in real time. And so for me, it's a matter of reminding people uh, who he really was, the radical king, and I, I say this uh, in closing uh, about King at least. People don't know this, and I, I like to say this just to remind people why it's important to see people in their full spectrum, mm -hmm. not just mm -hmm. a piece of them. The last phone call that King made from that hotel, uh, the Lorraine in, in Memphis, was back to his church. You know, he pastored the church Ebenezer with his daddy, uh, mm -hmm. uh, his father, Daddy King, in Atlanta. And every Thursday or Friday at the latest, wherever he was in the country, he had to call in to his secretary, Dora McDonald, to tell her what his sermon was going to be. Because back in the day, when you walk in church, they give the Sunday morning bulletin, right? With the sermon, what we're going to sing today, the last page was blank for you to write your notes from the sermon. So we don't do that now, uh, but um, you're trying to save trees. But back in the day, they gave you a Sunday morning bulletin when you walked into church. And so he had to always call Dora McDonald to tell her what his sermon was going to be so they could get it printed in the bulletin. Um, so he talked to his mom, he talked to his dad, they were at the church that day, he talked to his mother, talked to his, his father, and he talked to Dora McDonald and told Dora McDonald what his sermon was going to be Sunday morning when he got back to Atlanta. And his theme that Sunday morning, had he lived and made it back to Ebenezer, was going to be entitled, Why America May Go to Hell. Whoa. Why America May Go to Hell. So if all you know is the, the dreamer, right, right. and you ain't wrestling with King later in his life, I mean, the, 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 the I Have a Dream speech is 1963. He's dead at 39, way too young. He and Malcolm both assassinated at the age of 39. Yeah, yeah. But he lives five years after the March on Washington. Yeah. 
and people don't have any concept of what he was doing five years after he gives this greatest speech. Well, in the last year of his life, he's trying to organize the, the poor people's campaign, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and, they, and the whole country's turned against him. As I said earlier, nobody wants to even be near Martin King. Uh, and so um, that sermon, Why America May Go to Hell, um, would have shocked the nation. And he was building it around what he called the triple threat facing our democracy. That triple threat from Martin King was racism, poverty, and militarism. Mm -hmm. Here we are in 2023, and what are we still dealing with? Racism, Same thing. poverty, and militarism. And so King wasn't, you know, there are a lot of great politicians. King wasn't a politician, he was a prophet. And so my work and my witness is really about trying to make the world safe for his legacy by, by asking the tough questions, by profiling the right people, by taking up the right causes, by trying to build this black talk radio network and platform to give our people a voice, by really just trying to make America live up, live up to her true ideals. Uh, in our country, there's still too big a gap between the have-gots and the have-nots, between the rich and the rest of us. And what we're experiencing right now is not sustainable. American democracy, or as I prefer to say it, our experiment in democracy, we're in a democracy yet, but the American experiment in democracy is fragile. Remember that song, Atlantic Star? It's a fragile situation. situation. It could fall, fall apart. apart at any time. <laughs> oh, man. That's how I love you. You know music, man. You know music. I know my music. It's a fragile situation. It could fall apart at any time. That's the state of our democracy mm. right now. Mm. We are on the precipice. This the, the, the poverty and income inequality and economic immobility is not sustainable. The heat wave we started out talking about at the beginning of this conversation, these temperatures, climate change and global warming, it's not sustainable. And on and on and on one could go with all the issues that we are confronted with in this country that are simply not sustainable. Our democracy is fragile. It's on the precipice of failing. And unless we make the world safe for King's legacy, justice for all, mm. service to others, and a love that liberates people, then our country is in trouble. Uh, and my read of history simply says this. There is no empire in the history of the world, if you know your history, that at some point did not falter. Hmm. Every empire eventually fails. Every empire stumbles. And we're so arrogant and so pompous and so caught up with American exceptionalism that we can't even fathom that it could happen to us too. But we are on the precipice. And the ultimate question is, who are we really? Who are we who are we really? America's grown older, but we haven't grown wiser. We've grown older, but we ain't grown up yet. Mm. Who are we really as a nation? And those are the things that King would have us wrestling with. So that's a long way of saying that in my work and witness, whatever it is, radio, television, books, speeches, appearances, black news, conversations, whatever I am, I'm reminding people um, that the best of who we are uh, is that Kingian tradition. And if we're going to save our democracy, we've got to get serious about addressing the triple threat that's facing us and all these other threats that we're now enduring. But that's my mission. Uh, no matter what I'm doing, um, I'm always trying to make the world safe um, for, for King. And uh, he is my greatest influence outside of Jesus. Okay. All right. Does that answer your question? Uh, very good. Okay. Very good. Okay. So you and Cornel West mm -hmm. were, were are hanging out now. Mm -hmm. How was that to be hanging out with him? Oh, I love him. I, yeah. We've been friends for 30-something years. Yeah. yeah. So we, um, I, I love being with him. Love hanging. I mean, 
he, he's the smartest Negro I know. <laughs> uh, the smartest person I ever know, I've ever known. Um, and uh, he is, to, to my mind, I've said this many times in introducing him, and we, we've traveled the world together and spoken together. Mm -hmm. And when I get a chance to introduce him, I always introduce him as the Du Bois of our time. Yep. He's the Du Bois of our time. Du Bois, iconic in his own right, but Dr. West is the Du Bois of our time. Um, and it's fascinating. Because as you know, he's running, you know, for president yes, he is. Uh, yes, he on, is. As, uh, on the Green Party yeah. ticket. Yeah. Um, and I just read an article this morning about how threatened the Biden administration is. He's a long shot. Let's be clear. Corner West is a long shot uh, to be president, but he's scaring everybody right. because they know if this Negro catches fire, you know, he has tons of followers. He's taught for you know thirty some years. Sure. He has all these students who are going to organize with him. Who he's taught. He's lectured at every college, it seems, in this country, university. Um, he speaks a truth, and he has a delivery and a style, as you know, that resonates with people, with his three-piece black suit and his afro. Yeah. He has his own flow, right? Yeah. Uh, and they are, they are concerned that if he catches fire, um, that there could be a reckoning. And you and I both know, if that Negro does well enough to make that debate stage, mm. oh, Lord Jesus, it's over. It's, it's over. It's, it's over. It's, 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 I don't know if it's over, but it's a whole new game. Whole if he gets on that game. debate stage, it's going to be a whole new game. Wow. And nobody is speaking to America mm. with the kind of clarity and truth that Dr. West is speaking well, about. Yeah. So he was in L.A. We just celebrated the, uh, the 10th anniversary of Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter, yeah. Black Lives Matter yeah. you know, that hashtag or anything started by those sisters in L.A. Uh, so BLM is, it was birthed in Los Angeles. So here we are, believe it or not, ten years uh, into the in ten years into the history, uh, ten years into the work and witness of, of Black Lives Matter. So we had a big celebration that KBLA sponsored with BLM. We shut down the streets in the Merck Park in Los Angeles. Uh, tons of folk came out. Uh, tons of speakers. A lot of the parents of these uh, babies who've been killed spoke. Sabrina mm. Fulton, Trayvon's mother was oh, there. Okay. A lot of a lot of mothers and fathers were there to speak. Yeah. Um, my friend Chuck D, Public Enemy, came out, performed. Chuck spoke. I got Chuck to come. And excuse me, Dr. West was the featured speaker. Okay. And when that Negro grabbed that microphone that day, uh, on the tenth anniversary of Black Lives Matter, Lord Jesus, mm. when he la he laid when he laid into it that day, you could see people's eyes sort of opening up about the thought of this Negro being president. And I brought him on stage. And I, I said to people, as I will say to you now, there are three things I ask people to think about when they think about Cornell West candidacy. So just think about this. So you know, you vote your conscience, but think about this. This is what I think about. Number one, can you imagine having a president with the intellect of Cornell West? I mean, just, 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 just start with his intellect. Mm. And I'm not impressed with braininess. I'm talking about his intellect. Right. Um, think about George W. Bush. <laughs> think about Donald Trump. Think about Cornel West. I mean, just the intellectual heft mm. excites mm. me and turns me on, number one. Number two, I have never been able to vote for a president or a candidate for president who did not see black people as a political calculation. Mm. It troubles me. The black folk are always a political calculation. I voted for Barack Obama twice, and you know I caught all kind of hell for my critique of Barack Obama, but even Barack Obama saw black folk as a political calculation. I don't like that. Um, Cornel West 
is the only candidate who has ever run for president who will tell you on CNN, on Fox News, on MSNBC, on Black Muse, on KBLA, no matter where he is, he's consistent. That Negro will tell you, I love all people. But let me be clear. My love starts on the chocolate side of town. I don't care where he is, he's going to tell you. I love black people first. My mama, my daddy, Shiloh Baptist Church, my neighborhood, Glenn Elder. He loves black people first unapologetically, and his love flows to everybody else from there. Okay, okay. Imagine a president who, who telling you going in, let me be clear, I love these Negroes. I love them. I'm going to do my best by them. Yes. Now, that may be why he doesn't get elected. <laughs> my point, though, is just to have the opportunity to vote for a guy with his intellect, yeah. with that love for black people, uh, unapologetically, but a guy who, again, is fundamentally about loving and serving people, um, justice for all, service to others, mm -hmm. a love that is liberating. So I I'm excited about the possibilities. I've already said that in the primary, he's getting my vote. We'll see what the general election brings, but he's he's getting my primary vote, and not just because he's my friend, but because he's he, we, we need a truth teller. Yeah. And America hasn't had a truth teller running for president in a long time, uh, and so I'm excited about what he's going to do. But we're, we're talking, you know, consistently, and he's asking advice, and you know, he knows his lane, he knows that I know my lane, media, marketing, promotion, all that kind of stuff. So we're talking regularly, and I'm going to do what I can to support him and help him out. But it's going to be a fascinating. Race, but if he uh, if he catches fire, it's gonna be yeah. it's gonna be something yeah. to watch, man. Yeah, get your yeah. Get, get your popcorn. Right. Get your popcorn, get your popcorn, popcorn man. Yeah. Yes, indeed. I, I know we're almost done. Sure. I got one more, maybe two more questions. I'm here for you. Come on. All right, here we go. This book here, what I know for sure. Mm -hmm. When you look at everything now, what do you know for sure now, Terrence? Yeah. Just your whole career, just as of now, what do yeah. you know for sure? Yeah. Woo! You trying to make me emotional, huh? Yeah, come yeah. on with it. Um, somebody once wrote these words: "Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne." Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows keeping watch above his own. Um, what, I, what I know for sure um, is that if our lives are about anything, they have to be about seeking the truth, speaking the truth, and standing in that truth. And when you do that, the headwinds are going to come. Um, I have a First Amendment right to free speech. I do not have a First Amendment right that folks have to agree with me. So when you speak certain truths, they're going to come for you. And I was just saying to Dr. West the other day, the more truth you tell, the closer you are to getting up on a cross. The more truth you tell, the closer you are to being crucified. And yet somebody has to have the courage to say what they see. To say what they see. Um, uh, uh, I've lived long enough now to know that there are repercussions and there are consequences for speaking your truth. Uh, I caught hell on Tom Joyner. I caught hell from my Obama commentary. 
you know, PBS came for me. Uh, and yet, with all of that, God is standing within the shadows, mm -hmm. keeping watch above his own, and I'm his own. Uh, and so I, I, I'm just, I, am, I am more committed now, whatever time I have left on, on, on this earth, I'm committed now more than I've ever been to the liberation of my people. That's my commitment. Whatever time I have left, I want to liberate um, to the extent that I can help liberate our people. So I'm, as I said, I say, say to black folk all the time, I love you and there ain't nothing you can do about it. I just love you and there's nothing you can do about it. So I'm going to keep fighting uh, with more vigor, with more energy than I ever have. Uh, I am no longer interested. And I think at one point in my career, I, I gave a lot of thought to what I could do to educate, to enlighten, encourage, empower our white brothers and sisters to see our humanity, mm. to see our dignity, um, to stop contesting our humanity. And that's no longer of importance to me. I have given up trying to change other people. I'm just working on us. Mm. I'm working on us. And I hope this Black Talk Radio Network that we're building will empower us, inspire us, enlighten us. Um, to know that, that we're all we need, you know, and, and, and let's be clear, we, we, we can do better and we must do better. Uh, but I am, I am unalterably, unapologetically, irrefutably, incontrovertibly in love with my people. Mm. And I want to spend the rest of my time, as I've always done, but now more so than ever, just committed to this notion of trying to uplift our people and amplify their voices. So what I know is that, um, that I'm clear on my mission. I'm clear on my vocation, my avocation. I'm clear on my calling. I'm clear on what my assignment is for the, for the rest of my life. And that's why, as I said earlier, I don't want to be distracted by doing other things right now. I want to stay focused on building what I'm trying to build and giving us our own platform, our own distribution system to, you know, again, to, to express ourselves. So that's, that's what I'm clear about, that, you know, the winds come, you know, um, the Bible I read says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. Now, you can't say that too early in your life. You've got to live some life and, and, and see, you know, that, that you can withstand these storms. Uh, and so what I know now, um, I took a all time, I ain't scared of nothing. you, you got to get up early in the morning to scare me. Um, and you better bring an army with you if you're going to come for me. I told some folks yesterday, if you ever see me in a fight with a bear, Negro, you better help the bear. As a matter of fact, you, you can pull honey all over me, and you still better help the bear. And I don't say that out of arrogance. I just say that because I've been through it. I've been knocked down enough times to know that I got the capacity to get back up. I got fired by BT. I got back up. I fell out with NPR. I got back up. I fell out with PBS. I got back up. And for me, it, it, Tom Joyner got mad at me at one time, and I left him. I got back up. And sometimes I've had to fight with my friends. Sometimes in life you do have to fight with your friends. What I realize again with all humility, getting knocked down as many times as I've been knocked down. It ain't how many times you get knocked down, it's how many times you get back up. And so what I, what I know now is that you know, I've, got, I've got the capacity to get knocked down and get back up. And when you've endured black folk being mad at you for your Obama commentary, when you've endured white folk at NPR being mad at you for calling them racist because they ain't got no black folk at NPR. When PBS tries to put you out to pasture, they try to, e they try to emasculate you, try to humiliate you and embarrass you, try to end your career, and God brings you back another way anyway, 
and you come back bigger and better and bolder and stronger, and now you own your delivery system, that, that's not Tavis. My point is that when you commit to doing the work that God put you here to do, he will always make a way for that work to get done. He didn't give you an assignment without the ability to complete the assignment. Right, right. And if he gave you the assignment, he's going to watch over you until you get done what he assigned you to do. So I'm just, I'm just, that's a long way of saying, I'm just, I'm more confident now. Not, not cocky, but I am more confident now in what my mission is, what my work is, what my calling is, and I'm more committed to it than I've ever been. That's what I know for sure. Okay. Good enough. Yeah. Good enough. Well, I think that on that note, <laughs> that's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Let the church say amen. Amen, y'all. Yeah. Amen. So please like and subscribe. Tavis Smiley on Black News. This has been a nice interview. No, let me just really? let me, let me, first of all, this wasn't an interview for me, it was a conversation. It was a conversation, not even an interview. Fair and I've had so many conversations with you over the years. Mm. And I want I want to close it if I can on Black News by mm. just by just um, saying to you how much I appreciate you. And I say that because, again, the, I'm about to get emotional again. The, the older I get, I get <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Mm. I said earlier that uh, put it together, Tavis. <clears throat> I said earlier that if I complained, I'd be an ingrate. But the older I get, the more grateful I am to folk who have always stood with me. And you have. Thank you. Well, I thank you too. I thank you too. And also, since, since we're going to get a little personal, I, I might as well say it publicly out loud. And I have never done this before. So hopefully it'll come out as well. I need to thank you for coming by to see me at the height of my medical challenge. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows that I have I had a stroke. We, we know that now. But you came to my door to check on me to see for yourself how is he really doing. So I thank you publicly for that. I thank it, you for that. So it was my it's mutual. It's no, mutual. It was, yeah. my, it was my great honor. Yeah. I, I love you. I, I care about you. And when I look back on all those days, I miss Mr. Johnson. Don't, don't go there. Oh, I, I miss him dearly. As you know, I, I never come to this city without going to see him. That's it. And going up to have lunch with him in his office. I miss mm. driving by the building and. Um, but again, the older I get, the more grateful I am for all these moments in my life that I've had. All the folk I've met, mentioned Portier and Belafonte, I'm, I'm losing friends, right? But I feel so humbled that in my life I've gotten a chance to know these people mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and to befriend them and to be taught by them. But when I look back at all the people who helped me build this, I couldn't have done this without Jet shouting me out and you writing so many stories about all the stuff that I was doing uh, as I was building my career. That stuff means something to me. That, 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 that cover, I mean, because of you, because of you and Linda and Mr. Johnson, I wasn't just in Jet more times than I can count, but y'all put me on the cover of Jet. 
And I still laugh about that to this day. When you walk in my office, you know, there's a, as you recall, you all in the building used to hang the big, huge posters in the window, right? Yep, yep. And I was yep. in Chicago one day around the time I was on the cover of Jet, and I saw my huge face on this poster hanging in the front of the Johnson building when I went to see Mr. Johnson. And I asked Mr. Johnson and Linda if, if when they took that down, if they could ship it to me, if I could have it. And they uh, did so. They mm. shipped it to me. Mm. Uh, I mean, you walk in my office, you see a lot of mementos, uh, but nothing means as much to me as that jet cover, and I'll tell you why. <clears throat> I'm one of 10 kids, as you know. Yes. Uh, and in the course of my career, I've been honored to, to be everywhere. I've got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, on the cover of Time Magazine, the one, one of the 100 most influential folk in the world. I've got 20-some-odd honorary doctorate degrees from the finest institutions in this country of higher learning. I've been able to do a little bit of everything. And um, none of that really impressed my brothers and sisters. They, they, <laughs> love, they love me, but I'm just tabbish to them, right. right? But Negro, when I got on the cover of Jet Magazine, it was over then. <laughs> it was over. When, when, when they saw me on the cover of Jet, they said, ooh, y'all. Tavis has made it. Now. He, now, now, now. Now I get it. Now, now, we get now, it. now I get it. Now we're proud of yeah. it. And I tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm on the cover of Time, Vanity Fair. I've been everywhere. Uh, but when I got on the cover of Jet Magazine and you wrote that cover story, uh. Lord Jesus, my brothers and sisters, they went to every liquor store, every grocery <laughs> store. I mean, I don't think anybody black in Indiana got a chance to buy a Jet magazine because my nine brothers and sisters, my 39 nieces and nephews bought every copy of that magazine uh, they could find in the state of Indiana. Yeah. And they were passing them out like candy. Okay. Did you see Tavis on the cover Jet? Did you see wow. that? And that, I mean, I, 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 I still I think about that and I, I still laugh about it because... It speaks to the things that we value mm. as black people. Yeah. Our, our journey yeah. is different. Yeah. It, it, our it, world it. is different. Yeah. And when you made the cover of Jet magazine, that was it. That was it. Lord, it was a game changer mm -hmm. for black people to be on the cover of Jet magazine. And so when I made that cover, it just it 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 fundamentally changed things for me. Uh, it made my younger brothers and sisters realize, you know, what I was trying to do, and the pride they had. Um, you walk in, in, all my siblings, you know, own their own homes now. We've been, I've, I've helped them because God has helped me. I've tried to help them. They've got college degrees and that kind of stuff. Mm. But you go to any one of their homes and you'll see that Jet Magazine to this day on their coffee table. Okay. That's been okay. 20, what, 25, yeah. 30 years? I don't know how yeah. long it's been. It's been long time. But yeah. they, they still just celebrate the fact that their big brother was on the cover of Jet Magazine. So I say all that to say that... Um, you know, having friends like you who have covered me over the years and always give me an opportunity and always give me a platform and have just been consistent, consistent, um, it, it means a lot to me. And again, the older I get, the more I realize that it's not about the ebbs and the flows. It's about the consistency. Hmm. What, 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 what you have to do in your life is to be consistent. You have to live your life by a certain set of immutable principles and always be true to those principles. I ask people all the time, young people, what is the mission statement for your life? Companies, corporations, organizations, we all have mission statements. Yeah, yeah. As human beings, 
You have to have a mission statement for your life. And I asked them, what is the mission statement for your life? And once you know what that mission statement is, can't anybody knock you off your square. Okay. You stay okay. consistent to that statement. You live by those immutable principles. Yeah. Whatever the yeah. truth is that you tell, come hell or high water, you, you tell that truth. You do it with the repercussions. You do it with the consequences as I have in my career. But you stay true to that so that when you die, it will have to say he stayed true to his convictions. And I told somebody in a question, somebody asked me a question the other day, you know, how I want to be remembered. And I said, you know something I don't know? Of course, I got scared. Like, <laughs> you know something I don't know? I ain't trying to go nowhere no time soon, but, I, but, but they asked me, how do you want to be remembered? And I said, well, I hope that time is no time soon. But if all they said about me is that he loved his people, I can live with that. The accolades, you know, King said called me a drum major for justice. That's all he cared about. For me, if all they say about me when my time is up is that he loved his people, that's enough for me. So I thank you for loving me and for loving our people and all the work you've done over the years at Jet and, and Ebony and now here at Black Muse. You've been a consistent lover of our people. I say to people all the time, you ain't got to be a leader of our people. Just be a lover of our people. Mm. And that's what I see myself as. I'm not sure I'm a leader of our people, but I am certainly a lover of our people. And that's what matters most to me. And so thank you for loving me and thank you for the opportunity to talk to you on Black News. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. <laughs>